What a great song. If you reflect on the words of that song, that's what we've come to do is to receive the word of the Lord this morning. Amen. And we have God's word in our language. Um, and it's by the word of God with the empowering of the spirit of God that God is building the people of God. He is building the church. I hope you recognize that this morning as you're here. Many of you members of Bethlehem Baptist Church, if you're not, if you're visiting, let me say, uh, as, as pastor here, we welcome you and, and uh, glad that you're here to worship the Lord Jesus with us. And the Lord wants you to be a part of uh, his faith family. So if you're not a member uh, somewhere, we would love for you to be a member here. If you, by faith, have trusted in Christ alone uh, for salvation. And if you have, we would love to have you come join and serve Christ here. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to chapter 3 of Genesis. And um, my voice is hoarse because I was more yelling through a couple of those songs instead of singing. And so, uh, pardon me and pardon my voice. Genesis chapter 3. I know you just sat down, but I want to encourage you, if you would and can, to stand as we read God's Word together. We will just read 1 through 7 this morning. And that's where we'll be in the text. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the Lord... Bless the reading of his word to our heart. Let's pray together this morning. Gracious Father, we come to you now, Lord, as we just sang, to receive the fruit of your word. Your word is truth. Your word stands the test of time. Lord, your word is what opens our eyes of our minds and our hearts to see truth. We know you do this by your Holy Spirit, and so we ask that your spirit might teach us now truths that are in fact unchanging. Lord, you never change and neither does your word. And so, Father, as we come to what may seem to be a very familiar text, I pray that you would teach us. That you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your word and truth. That you would teach us, Lord, what our problem is as human beings. That you would convict by your spirit and you would bring people to repentance 
and faith in you, the only wise God. So have your way now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated together. This morning we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. And I do believe and am convinced this is the saddest chapter in the Bible. If you are here this morning, I know this week has been so challenging for so many. But if we really step back, uh, there are so many challenges and discouragements and circumstances and trials in life. Death, cancer, physical disasters such as earthquakes. Hurricanes, tsunamis, all these different things that we, we, we ask, why has this happened? Just think of, for a moment with me, the brokenness in your own life and in your family's life. And do you ask the question, why are things like they are? Why is it like this? Why is there so much heartache and pain? Why does it seem like I can, I can never have peace and joy? Why do I have struggles in my, just in my thought life? Why can I not enjoy life? Why did my spouse die? Why? Why, Lord? Have you asked that? Have you thought that? If you're honest, I think you have. If you're honest this morning and look around at this world, at our country, in our city, in this town, it is, it is broken. It is completely broken. And this is the reason why. This is the reason why. Our world is broken because we are broken. And the fall of man that we see this morning, the title of this message is the radical fall. And that is indeed what it was and is. Listen. Man, what we see, rebels from the holy, good, gracious, covenant, redeemer, creator. He rebels from it. High-handed rebellion right here. That's why the world is in the mess that, is it, that it is in. We see deception, sin, death, judgment. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, we will see hope that God has because God has an eternal plan to reverse all this pain and all the brokenness in the person of his son. But here is the bad news. This is the bad news, yet there is encouragement for we can answer. The biblical worldview, the Christian worldview provides an answer to a broken culture. And it's the only one that provides the answer to the broken culture of why are things as broken as they are? Why do I struggle as I do? For man, think about where man was. I have a, a question for you to think about this morning is what made the Garden of Eden so special? Genesis 1 reveals that God has created man in his image. After creating the world and everything therein, and the beast, the prize of his creation is man. And we have seen in chapter 2, let me back up, God was 
God made man and woman to, to, to rest with him in good relationship and fellowship. And then in chapter 2, he creates a garden, a place that his presence would dwell with man. The Garden of Eden was representative of the world he made for man to be with him in. And to rule as his little king priest, as we might say, his vice regents, his little rulers here. The one he would give dominion over the animals and the land to rule and to reign in glad submission to his lordship. What was so special about this place? We see in the place God took the man and created the woman. He made the woman from the same stuff man was made from. Man was made from the dust of the earth and God breathed life into his nostrils. And he put man to sleep and he took from him a rib and he fashioned woman in his likeness. A helper fit for him. One equal in value yet distinct in purpose and role. Man was not, woman was not man, but she was made from the man for the man. To complement the man. That's why we are complementarians in our understanding of gender. And he institutes marriage that the man and the woman would leave and cleave. The man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And she'll become one flesh. And these two are put and placed, man first, placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. And it's beautiful. Everything is provided for man. An unbelievable place. In the midst of this garden was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But also first the tree of life is shared in verse 9. For out of it, out of the ground, the Lord God, the covenant redeemer, the creator, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So what made the Garden of Eden so special? What would you say? What you say in the answer to that question will help reveal to yourself what you know about God already in the scriptures. What made the Garden of Eden so special was, was it the beautiful trees? Was it the food that they got to eat? Was it the, the rivers that flowed through and out and down from this elevated temple of God that was just unbelievably beautiful? Was it the beauty of man and woman? As man said of woman when he first laid eyes on her, this is last. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Was it the beauty of human beings? Is that what made it special? What made it special was the presence of the creator. And not any kind of creator. The one who created all things is indeed the covenant redeemer. He has revealed himself to be to man and woman. Although nothing is to be redeemed yet, which we talked about. The presence of God was with the man and woman in the garden. The presence of God was life. It was relationship. It was fellowship because God was there. And what we see with the fall, the radical fall of man, is this will be lost. 
And the replacement that happens within the rebellion is shame and guilt and the exiting of man and woman from the presence of God. God doesn't leave, but man is driven out, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Man dies spiritually in the garden. Just two headings this morning for us. Two headings to guide our, our time together in this sermon that will help us understand, and, and, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks. I tried very hard to preach this whole chapter. I believe it's meant to do that. But it can also be preached in sections, but I want to tie all that together. Because what is special is the presence of God that is about to be lost to man because of his rebellion. And that's the question that is left with us at the end of chapter 3, running into chapter 4 of Genesis. How do we get back into the presence of God? How do we have access to him again? So a couple of things. First, we're going to look at the deception and then the decision. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. A couple of things I want you to note here, and we're not going to be able to unpack everything in these seven verses, but that which is key for us. Number one, the last mention here uh, for a little bit of the covenant redeemer's name, the Lord God. This is signaled by this word crafty. Crafty. What do you think of when you hear the word crafty? Maybe you've been in a relationship, you got some buddies, and they tell you uh, in business, watch out for that brother. He's pretty crafty in the things that he does. What does that bring to your mind? He may be looking out for someone, and it's probably not me. He's crafty in his dealings. He's shrewd. He's intentional. He's calculating in the things that he does and the things that he says. There's a question and motive. The snake, the serpent here, was made by the Lord God, but he was more crafty than any other beast. He was calculating. And we know, based on the rest of Scripture, that this serpent has been filled with Satan himself to come and to deceive. Deception. The first heading you have here is the deception that led to doubt through the questioning of God's word. The fall of man, make no mistake, was a rebellion. That means there was a knowledge of knowing what he did. But it's interesting that this crafty serpent does not come to the man, but he comes, look in verse 1, to the woman. And let's see what he says. He said to the woman, did God actually say? Thinking upon his craftiness, he already has changed the name of God. He has referred back to God as Elohim, the creator. He's not speaking of the covenant redeemer's name. For Satan was not, uh, did not believe that God was the covenant redeemer. Even though he knew he was, he didn't trust him in that. He rebelled. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? So what you have here is you have deception right at the beginning. Our senses should be up 
with the word crafty, but they're not. Eve's is not. She's unsuspecting. She's in the Garden of Eden, right? What should is there? What is there to fear? And Satan, this great deceiver, understood this. And so he takes God's word and he distorts it. The fall of man happened through the deception and the distortion of God's word. He doesn't deny God. Satan does it here at the beginning. He just distorts what he says. Did God actually say? What he's doing is raising in the woman's mind. And as we'll see here in a minute, or as you see here already, you don't see this in the English unless if you look in your Bibles real quick at the word you in verse one. He said to the woman, did God actually say you may have a, a, a little number there that leads you to a footnote in your Bible. And that word you is in the plural. Do You know what that means? You probably do. Plural means there are more than one. Who is the serpent talking to? He is talking to the woman. For the man is with him, present. What we see in this garden as the serpent enters in, how he does it, I don't know. That's not the important thing, but he's there. And he, he deceives the woman is that the man is there, passive and cowardly, handing over the responsibility of providing and protecting in the garden to his wife. You. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? It sounds a little different now. Both of them were there. And the woman said to the serpent, Satan rises, raises the question. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, notice what she's already been into. What name is Eve using? Well, before even the name of God, she's not even referring to him as her covenant redeemer now. She's referring to him as creator. She's fallen line in, right in line with the train of thought of what the questioning that the serpent has presented. And she's already distorted and misquoted God himself. Now we need, we need to step back here because boy, it seems like a lot of weight on the woman. But remember what I said, Adam was cowardly. He cowardly and rebelliously stepped back and let his wife stand there in the presence of this serpent and hear God's word being questioned. Right? And she then shares, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Who was the command of God given to? If you look back in chapter 2, it was given to the man. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of which tree? Every tree. She has already lessened the provision that God had given. God had said, you can have everything. I've placed you in a garden of yes, Adam. It's all for you. It's all for you. Now, what's significant about this in two? The woman's not made yet. You see, the command is given to man. Man is the head. He, you have headship here. And what theologians would call and what you need to understand is you have federal headship. He is representing all of humanity here. 
The decisions made here in chapter 3 by the man and him being passive, being a coward and not leading his wife, his family, are catastrophic to you and me. Here's why. Here's why brokenness is here. It's because the rebellion of Adam. You can have it. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Remember those words. So she misquotes God. It's missing every, any, all of them but one. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Well, wait a minute. There's two trees in the midst of the garden, right? We're good Bible students. Look back. What did he say to Adam in verse 9? And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This questioning of God is so enticing to the woman and to the passive husband who is standing there to see what exactly is going to happen here. So unknowingly, she shares God's, misinterprets God's word and quotes it wrong. And she lessens the punishment. Look at what verse 3 says. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? Oh. She has even then heightened what God had prohibited. She's added to God's word by saying you can't even touch it. That's not what he said. Don't eat of it. He didn't say you couldn't touch it, right? Now, logically, probably would have been good not to touch, right? And she's thinking that. Lest you die. No, no. God says, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what we see here is Satan. He always deceives. He distorts. He twists the truth of God's word. He does use God's word, but he twists it to accomplish his purpose. Now, what we know about Satan is not revealed a lot. He is not a person. He's a created being. He's an angel that rebelled in heaven before the worlds began and God cast him out because he led a third of the angels to rebel as well. And God cast him out of heaven and he enters the scene here to deceive. And it's the same today. And we see the deception all over. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to see and believe the light of the gospel. That is what he is doing. He's a deceiver. From the beginning of time. This is what he sets out to do. And he is deceiving this moment right now. For so many sitting right here in this room. He's deceiving you. How do you know that pastor? Are you a prophet? No, but I do work for a non-for-profit. Because his word tells us it does. How do I know that we are deceived? Because there is not a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. We don't have someone on our side that we've, we've been praying and pleading over. Come to Jesus. Trust Him. Every one of us, have, myself included, have lost people that we know that have been deceived by the enemy. They're believing the lie of Him, 
of the world and its trajectory, and we're complacent and we're apathetic to what's going on. Because the first doctrine that is denied by Satan, Satan here, notice what it is. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What is that? The doctrine of what? Punishment. Death. Divine judgment. All of those, and if you're here this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ, you are under God's wrath. And you are headed to what was created for Satan and his demons. But what he will punish, all those who reject him, you're headed to hell. Right? But it doesn't have to be that way. He wants you to know. How do I know the church is everything? Look around. Right? Look around. And I understand where, understand too. We have to, to balance that. I know we got those in the parking lot, those that are home, those that are sick. I'm not talking about. But for the most part, not just here, but across the world, the U.S., this community, there's an apathy in the church. And I believe it's because we don't understand who we are at the core, at the heart of man. We're rebels against God. Listen, you don't want him in yourself. I don't want to trust him. And how is that fleshed out? I don't believe his word. Man is placed in the most perfect situation. And what does he do? It's this guy. There. And the truth of this, men, you and I would do the same thing here. Don't be so prideful to think. Had a guy tell me that one time, I would have done different. No, you wouldn't, brother. No, you wouldn't. So the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now he denies God's word. See, deception is a slippery slope for us. Right? And Satan comes in and he doesn't deny God, but he distorts and then he just says straight up blasphemy. Right? He denies the word of God. You shall surely not die. And then he shares the motive. He puts in the question what is going, what in the mind of the woman and the man? For God knows, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What does he tempt him with? The very thing that God gave in verse 16 is the, the choice that Adam had to choose life, to believe God, or to go his own way. The temptation for woman and for man was autonomy. I can choose what is good and what is not. You remember last week in the message, verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good. Listen, there is one who determines good and one who determines what is bad, and that is the Lord. Good and evil, there is a standard that is revealed. It's right here in his word and nowhere else. Man does not determine that. Only God does. And so Satan tempts man with knowing what God knows. And specifically with the woman, what she was deceived is that she could gain wisdom outside of trusting the Lord. And in a sense, she does gain that. And so does the man. But the consequences of that are not what they thought, right? 
not even close to what they thought. The serpent distorted the question. And Eve had a chance to set the serpent straight, but she doesn't. And by implication, because the command was given to the man as the head, listen, he should have stood up and said, no, that's not what God said. And by the way, who are you? And why are you talking to my wife like this? But that's not what the man does. He cowers down and he watches. So look at what happens. We see the decision of disobedience come. And it comes through the introduction of thinking that we can interpret God's word and we can determine what is good based on their own judgment. And the thought is within the woman and in the man that God is keeping something from us. That's why whether you're young, I'm talking little kids, or a teenager, or you're adults, is man's sin looks so enticing and so good. And we say and have said for so long from pulpits, sin is bad. It is wrong. And that's true. But let me tell you, sin is fun. And it is pleasing to our flesh because we're in Adam. It is so good for a little bit of time. And it looks so tasteful, right? It looks like, boy, this is where it's at. Where do we see this illusion? Where do we see this lie vividly? We see this on the television, right? The gateway to our hearts is through our eyes. The gateway to our minds is what we look at, what we listen to, right? What are you listening to? What are you watching? I can tell you what's on primetime television and even what's on slang. I got rid of primetime TV. I'll just get some filth. Things we should be appalled at. We have been desensitized to. We listen. Our teenagers listen to some crazy junk. But you know what? We did too. It's just been turned up. So now we hear what they listen to. Now they're like, oh, you're crazy. What are you listening to? That's filthy. Foul language, talking about raping women, and getting into country music. It's, it's no different. We just like the, the tune a little bit more, right? But you go back to the things that we listened to. It was just tempered, but it was there. There was a worldview in it, right? What are you saying? Is that we just know what to watch TV? No, we need to be thinking and listening critically. And then there are some things we shouldn't look at and some things we shouldn't listen to. And we say, no, not here, not in my house. We're not going to do that. We're not going to entertain that. But we've been heated up slow. And so look at what happens. The decision of disobedience was a result of disregarding the word of God. And this leads to death. This is what happens. Satan presents it. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Let me see, the man says, let me see what's going on. He doesn't even see, even though he does, he does see 
that Satan has come. And what does he attack? God's word and God's order. God has specifically ordered things precisely from the stars to the moon to the sun to man. And Satan comes in the form of a, 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 an animal as a serpent. Creation is now coming and tempting man. He, he, he doesn't come to the man. Think about what he's doing. He's flipping everything up on his head. He's questioning God's word and he's questioning God's order. And they bite hook, line, and sinker. And that's how a disregard for God's word starts is through deception. Trusting in that I can be like God. Right? That's what they're tempted with. Think about that for a minute. Like I have it there in your notes. What, what, what is so sad about this whole thing? What's so sad about being tempted to be like God? What do we know? What do you know? What do we know about who they, who they were? They were image bearers. They weren't anywhere like God. You see that? They were made in his image to reflect him. How foolish are we? And we're not talking. Listen, so many times I've heard God say, you know, Adam was just ignorant. No. His, his intellectual capability was maximized. He was perfect. And God had even honed that through the naming of animals. Right? Not just five or six of them. All of them he named. Think about that. He was not ignorant. He was stepping back from his role, his God-given role as head, provider and protector, prophet and priest to his beautiful bride, to, to shepherd. And he, he allowed all of this. And he said, God, I am not trusting you. I am going to trust in what we see. I am not going to exercise faith. That sound familiar? Right? So she sees she saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise and she took of its fruit and she ate and also gave some. There it is. To be desired to make one wise. She thought she could gain wisdom and be like God. Right? Autonomy. And, and that's, that's it. That's it in our culture as well. We think we can do things on our own, individually. We think we can live our marriages like we want to live our marriages. We think we can do things in the church the way we want to do things in the church. No, God's word governs all things in life, everything. And we know that now as believers, but we have a tough time submitting to that because of Genesis 3, we're fallen. So there's always a rub. It's always a struggle. It's always a struggle. But what's so beautiful about the gospel is that it frees us to struggle. I'm not struggling to be free from all this, but now I'm, I'm free to struggle and to fight against by the power of the Spirit. And I'm to do it in dependence upon God's Word. Adam willfully rebelled. He was not deceived at all, for the Lord God gave him the direct command. He passively sat back and he did not fulfill his role as head over creation, the serpent, and over his wife, who then usurped his authority and made the decision. He should have spoke strongly, but he didn't. 
We know that this is to be true because Scripture interprets Scripture. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Who was deceived? The woman. Who rebelled and plunged man into a, a tailspin, right, until the coming of Christ? And we still are spinning, right, away from the Lord? Adam did. Adam did. We see this in Romans 5, verse 12. It, it highlights for us, and then verse 17 through 19, it highlights for us what we were in Adam than what we are in Christ. But I just want to read verse 12 and then highlight verses 17 and 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. What you have is headship. You have federal headship. What you're going to see as we walk through the Bible in Genesis and into Exodus is you're going to see a, a term called corporate solidarity. The one representing the many. That's what you have in Adam. He is the head. And so when Israel would sin, as you know, think of, think of as, as, the, as the, the people of Israel enter the promised land, they go to Jericho. Right? It's like, it's like going to Atlanta. And, and God takes this great city, or New York, or Knoxville, Knoxville, not quite as big as those cities. New York City, you go to New York City, and you just take it by marching around the city and blowing a trumpet. That makes no sense, right? It makes no sense. But that's what the Lord said to do. That's what they did, and they got it. But old Achan, whose name means troubler, when God prohibited them from taking any of the spoils, what does he do? He takes some, and he hides it. It's funny, because that's what's going to happen next week. We'll see that death is entered here in seven. You get there in a minute. But then they go and they hide. He hides it in the ground in his tent. And what does Joshua do? He brings all the clans of Israel. A clan was known as 25,000 people. Then he, person by person, he comes in and he asks them. And then he brings about, God brings about confession. And it cost Achan, whose name means troubler, his life, his family's life. He troubled himself, he troubled his family, and he troubled the nation. And this is what Adam has done. But there was a new Adam that would be prophesied to come. And he has come. And he would represent the many who would believe. Even before they believed, which is mind-blowing to me. If you believe, that's you and me this morning, brother and sister, in Christ. And that is good news. Kent Hughes says, I got in your notes, it's wrong. Steve Lawson was quoting Kent Hughes and his commentary, Foundations of Truth. In Kent Hughes' commentary on the book of Genesis, he says this, Adam sinned willfully, eyes wide open without hesitation. His sin was freighted with sinful self-interest. What was it? I wonder if I could be like God. He had watched Eve take the fruit and nothing happened to her. He sinned willfully, assuming there would be no consequences. Everything was upside down. Eve followed the snake. Adam followed Eve. And no one followed God. 
And that is very similar to our culture today. And it's all because of the fall, the radical fall of man. And it all sprung from not trusting the word of God. We trust in ourselves. We trust in our feeling instead of thus saith the Lord. His ways are good. They're perfect. And oh, what we would experience if we just trust him by faith and not trust in ourselves. Derek Kidner makes this observation on these words, take and eat. She saw that it was what? Go back to Genesis. She thought that it was good for, the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and there was a, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She took and ate. Kidner says this, he's an Old Testament theologian. He says, he knows that the verbs take and eat describe a very simple act in the garden. That act, however, remained very costly, required a very costly remedy. For the Lord himself would have to taste death before these words, these verbs became verbs of salvation. And they would. For the Lord Jesus would say, hey, listen, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Is it important to celebrate communion? Yes, we need to do it often. For it reminds us of who we were. And it reminds us of who we are. And it reminds us of who God is. And it reminds us of what God has done. And in light of that, it reminds us of who we are. Who we were and who we are now, right? Everything starts and ends with God. What was so special about the garden? The presence of God. His word was truth, for he was truth. And so the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they both died spiritually. The relationship was broken. Fellowship would be cut off. This is what you're going to see as uh, the Lord would approach man and woman, just as he has done so many times before. And they recognize the sound of him in the garden. We'll see this next week. But what man is left with is guilt, shame, and fear. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. Linking back up to verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, but now they are. Now they're ashamed. They have done things their way. And what they're left with is shame, guilt, and fear. Alienation, being alienated from God is what is coming. Being separated from the presence of the Lord God. And what does man try to do? And this is what he tries to do now. He does it in so many ways in our culture and in this area is he tries to make himself pleasing in God's sight by doing things his way again. For he knew he sinned, their eyes were open and they knew they were naked and they knew this ain't right. We have disobeyed God. So they sewed fig leaves together. They took creation, right? And tried to make themselves pleasing in the sight of God. Because they knew he would be coming. And we'll see in verse 8. They hide from him. But that's what we do. We do it through good works. I can be a good person. I can do enough good deeds. That's garbage. You cannot please a holy God. You can't in yourself. Perfection is lost. Paradise is lost. And what comes next week is the confrontation of God Almighty. With the serpent. With the woman. With man creation. We'll see God sets the order right and has the promise of redemption to come. And 
there's lessons for us to be learned here. There's lessons for us to learn. We cannot make ourselves acceptable in God's eyes by using anything of this world. Even as you move forward into uh, the sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, we're starting the book of Leviticus this morning. Read in Leviticus, right? That'll bless you, right? Just delight yourself in that book. Clean, unclean, lawful, unlawful. It's purposeful. But chapter 16 through 9, the Day of Atonement, it was temporary. The blood of bulls and goats was only temporary. Could temporarily cover the sin of the priest and of the people. But there would be one who would shed his blood that would cover the sins of the whole world. That is Christ. What we see is from Adam and Eve's sin. We learn that sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word. And God's word tells us about his goodness. So we end up doubting that. We end up doubting his way by doubting his word. The heart of man is radically corrupt to the core. Unable to choose God anymore. God has to, as he's done from the beginning, he has to intervene. If he doesn't, man is lost. We will not choose God anymore. It's no wonder that the Old Testament tells us to do what? The prophets tell the people. Moses tells the people to know and memorize the word of God. It is the word of God that enables us to discern truth from error. What is right? What is wrong? It is the word of God alone. May we as Bethlehem Baptist Church be a people who are centered upon the word of God. For the word of God magnifies Jesus. This is who we follow. But his word is what's important. Our gathering together, all the different elements of worship are governed by the word of God. Everything we do from announcements, prayer, even our song. Listen, we are not governed by what we sing. We're governed by what God says. As a result of that, we sing. We get to. We get to sing. We should want to sing. We should want to sing loud for the Lord. No matter what genre of song it is. As long as it's rooted in scripture. But God's word governs everything we do. But now there's going to be a rub because of the fall. So Moses, he would come. And he would call the people to put God's word at the center of their existence. Think about what he says in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's he saying? He's telling the people of Israel, the word must be centered in your life, in your family. Center it. How much time do you spend with it? Then at the end of Deuteronomy, what does Moses do? Right? What does he do? He completed his writing of the word. And he placed it beside the Ark of the Covenant. And he sang a song. And he says this. Deuteronomy 32, 46, 47. Take to heart all these words by which I am warning you today. That you may command them to your children. That they may be careful to do to do the words of this law, or it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Listening to the word of God brings life. That's what God was trying to tell Adam there. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. There's the tree of life. Eat freely. Eat freely. Your very life 
Moses says. That attitude became the standard of the whole Old Testament. Think about what the Psalm says. Psalm 1, how does it open up? Remember? You remember what Psalm 1 says? <laughs> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Think of the progression that's going on there. Walking, right? Standing, and then sitting. This is a little slow fade that happens. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Meditating has the idea of memorizing at every stage of life. We commit God's word to our memory the best we can. Psalm 119, the longest psalm and longest chapter in the Bible, right? 176 verses. What are they committed to? Well, it's interesting. They're divided into 22 parts in an acrostic poem based on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew alphabet has got 22 letters. From alph to tau, saying, saying in effect that God's word is everything from A to Z. That's what it's saying in Psalm 119. The final chapter of Isaiah records, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When you fear the word, you will obey the word. God's word was the life of God's people. And we come to the New Testament, praise God. The law was given, there's 10 words it's used as many times, but if you know that or not, you ever heard that, the 10 commandments? Known as the 10 words. It's important, right? God's 10 commandments were given to reflect his holiness and to show man as a mirror. You can't keep this. That's what Israel tried to do. Right? Try to do that. We see Jesus as second Adam. And he is the man of the word. This is fully God, fully man, come to fulfill. And he too is tempted, we see in Matthew 4. 4. Think about what he says. And I know, I know you're thinking about much, but stick here. For there is something that will fulfill your belly much more than a sandwich or spaghetti or even a good old ribeye. And it is the word of God. Then Jesus was led, Matthew 4, 4, interestingly, by the Spirit. He is the new Adam. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Adam was fulfilled, the first Adam, and everything he needed. But the new Adam is even heightened. He was hungry for 40 days and for 40 nights. The word of God has become flesh. And look at verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And this first quotation from Deuteronomy 8, chapter 8, verse 3 is foundational. For he quotes Deuteronomy three times. Two in chapter 6 and in one here in 8.3, the very first one. It's important that it comes first. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first Adam did not live that way. He rebelled to that. The God man, Jesus Christ, did. He did live upon God's word. When he was tempted like the first Adam, unlike him, he threw himself upon God's word. And he quoted it back to the deceiver. Defeating Satan. Three times from Deuteronomy. 
The eternal word of God come in flesh, trust in what? Himself? No, he could. In, in a sense, he did, but he trusted the written word, or he quoted Deuteronomy. How incredible is that? Listen, that's awesome. You should say, that's awesome. That's incredible. The eternal word became man and trusted in the written word. Do you see that? What Jesus is saying is that the word must be our food. Moses, who was an earthly savior for Israel, who delivered them from slavery in Egypt, said what? The word of God is our life. Jesus, our savior, the eternal savior, said it must be our food. The word must be our life and our food. The word must be sinner in my life. How is it with you this morning? Sadly, many of you have not picked the Bible up this week and read it. And I have no clue who that is. I know it happens. You know why? Because it happens in my life. We get so busy with what we think is important. Nothing can replace time in the presence of God that has been afforded to us now through the person and the, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. You need this before you need food. You need this before anything else. I need this before I need anything else. The same Jesus, the second Adam, through dependence upon God's word, triumphant over the tempter. He lived a perfect life and died, uh, died with a, a victor's cry. Remember what he said? It is finished. It is finished. I've done everything. He rested everything on God's good word. And on the good God of the word. That's what he believed in. What are you trusting in this morning? David Allen says this, and I have two quotes and I'm done. A thorough knowledge of the word of God and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for the spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he couldn't be more right. He couldn't have worded it any better. He goes on and says, God's people must therefore have a wholehearted trust in the goodness of God. Is Genesis 1, 2, and 3 foundational? Absolutely. And he says this, a precise knowledge of the word of God and an obedient fear of God himself. They must remember that they are human and not divine and therefore must obey. True wisdom may be attained through the compliance with the commandments of the Lord. And what the rest of the scripture will go on to teach us is that man tries to make himself perfect before the Lord through obedience, root obedience, through doing the law, right? And he just can't do it. We can't do it. What was special about the garden? The presence of God. What we'll see at the end of this chapter is man is cut off from the presence of God. Now he's left naked and ashamed and guilty. And you may be here this morning and you feel guilt and you feel shame. That's why when you do sin and the pleasure that it brings just for a little while, you wake up the next morning if you're a believer or even just a little bit after that. And there's something that's God given us, his conscience and his law here on our heart that we know that we're wrong. I've sinned against God, but we don't want to say that. But one last thing I do want to say. We're going to see. God is 
God has provided a way. I'll go with it. God has provided a way, and it's through His Word and trusting in the eternal Word. If you haven't trusted in God's Word, Jesus Christ, He's the Word made flesh, John tells us. If you haven't trusted in that, trust in Him. Trust in Him. Men, know your role. Right? The kids say, hey man, hey bro, stay in your lane. Men, let's get in our lane. Let's understand what God has given us to do. Let's don't be passive. The only way we lead our wives and our families properly is in our submission to and our adherence to the word of God. And ladies, don't usurp the authority. Trust in what God says about your divine role. God will remove, by the gospel, he'll remove all shame, all guilt, and all alienation. And by believing the gospel, he'll bring you right back in the very presence of God and you will have peace. Now, when you lay your head down, and forevermore, but it's only trusting his way. Will you be deceived? Will you continue to be deceived? Or will you know God's word to speak it back to those times that come, right? And make a decision to trust the Lord. Make that decision today. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. The benefits are out of this world. Brother and sister in Christ, the benefits are still out of this world. Right? We'll see that tonight. Father, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. There's, I see myself, Lord, so much here in Adam. I thank you that you have revealed what our problem is. Lord, I thank you that you have done something about it. I pray, God, that your spirit would move in the hearts of your people. I don't have the adequate words in my brain or the capability to, to share, Lord, what you have and what you can bring. Lord, you, as you, you say it, your, your words are life. As the disciples said, where, where, where we go, Lord? As you, you asked them, where Will you leave us? Where shall we go? For you have the words of life. And then we cast ourselves upon you, trusting in Christ, trusting in the written word that reveals us, reveals to us who you are. God, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to remain outside of your presence, but that we can be with you. Trust you, believe you, follow you. Lord, thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. I invite you to stand as we Worship together if God is dealing with you. Respond to Him. Trust Him. Believe Him. The love of God.